Uh, we're coming to that point in the sermon. Uh, I want to ask up all of the fifth grade and youngers up. Come on up here, Faith. Is it just you? Is your brother not joining me yet? It's just you for today? That's fine. We can talk. So today, today, as we're talking about what we believe as Christians, we're asking a, a question. Who is Jesus? Let me ask you. Who do, what, if I were to ask you, who is Jesus? Who would you say he is? Yeah, actually, that's the very first thing we're going to talk about today. We're going to spend a couple weeks talking about what the Bible says about who Jesus is. But actually, if you turn to the next slide, the first thing that we need to talk about when we talk about Jesus is he is God. Good job. That was a great answer, Faith. What'd you say? Yeah, it's just you. That's okay. That's okay. Yep. Oh, uh, I'm not sure. She'll probably join me next week, though. I'm glad you asked. But yeah, Jesus is fully God. So let me ask you, Faith. If he is fully God, does that mean he's not a human being? Mm, it's tricky, right? It's tricky. A lot of a lot of us adults have trouble with this too. But what we believe about Jesus is that he is both fully God and fully a human being. He is. That's amazing. So I know I asked you in a tricky way. I asked you in a tricky way. That's fair. He is a human, and he's God, right? Good job. Uh, uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to release you to Miss Cindy in the back. I think a couple others might join you on the way, but I'm not sure. So, yes, Jesus is fully God and fully human. And parents, I understand that we're talking about some tricky things in faith. So if you want help on how to have this conversation, always pick up Table Talk. Because this is the fundamental of the gospel, is that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And that is the beginning of the gospel, that God be became a man for our sake. So um, today, though, uh, as we transition, today is graduation Sunday. So we're going to be celebrating our graduates. We're going to be celebrating our eighth graders moving up into high school or uh, our high school graduates uh, moving on to the next stage of life. And we even have a college graduate with us who is moving to St. Peter's, Missouri soon and starting his job, which is exciting. So um, as I was thinking about Graduate Sunday and kind of these transitions in our life, uh, I thought a lot about um, graduation speeches, right? And if you think about graduate speeches, a lot of them are really just trying to capture kind of in one moment all of the final things that you want to say to someone, to send them off so that they do well in their next season and their next stage of life. And as I was thinking about that, the book of Second Peter kept coming up into my mind. And the reason for that is if you look at Second Peter, what this is, is this is essentially the Apostle Peter's last writing. Uh, his Shortly after writing this, he is actually martyred for the faith, and he knows that this is coming up. If you actually look in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, uh, it, it mentions that he knows that his time is short. And so he wants to give those he's writing to kind of the, the final words, the important stuff, kind of the, the essence of, if you get one thing from all that I've taught you, get this, right? 
And, and so as I was thinking about uh, graduate speeches, that's, that's in essence what we want. And so I turned to Second Peter, and the interesting I found about this is, uh, I'm going to just read it to you. So in Second Peter uh, chapter 1, starting with verse 12, it says this, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So what Peter is saying here is, I'm about to tell you something that you've heard me say a million times before. You get this image of Peter constantly beating the same drum of saying, listen, this is important. And it's true. Uh, uh, one of the things about human beings is that repetition is so important to us. And so we need to hear truth spoken to us again and again before it sinks in. But even here, this audience that Peter is originally writing to, not only have they heard this before, but they're actually established in this truth. And yet the very last thing that Peter is writing to him, he makes a point to say it again which tells you that what Peter is about to say is important and you need to get it. And so that means that um, what I'm about to preach to you today, it's incredibly important for our graduates and for our eighth graders moving up and, and moving into a new season of life. But it's also important for every single Christian. These truths every Christian needs in all seasons of life. So it's a message to all of us as well. And so before diving in uh, uh, to this message together, I just want to pray and I'd, uh, ask for God's grace over this message before we begin. Uh, Father, I, I just thank you that uh, you promised that your word, when it goes out, it never returns without accomplishing what you sent it to accomplish. And I pray that as we study your word, that you'd send your spirit to prepare our hearts uh, so that we would be obedient and, and attentive to what you are teaching us today, and that by your word you would transform us so that we are more like your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So second Peter, what I want to do today, by the way, is a little bit of a different type of sermon. I want to preach through the whole book of Second Peter. Now what that means, even though it's a short book, it means that I cannot go into all the little granule details of the whole book. Instead, what I want to give you is an overview of what Peter is saying in this final letter that he sent. And, and what, I, what I encourage you to do then is this week, or if you're graduating, maybe even spend some extra time this summer, read through this book yourself. I think you'll find in it many, many things that uh, are going to be edifying and fruitful for your Christian walk. Um, but as we look at the book of 2 Peter as a whole, I think we could summarize it as saying that what Peter is doing is he, he's kind of doing two things at once. Uh, the first thing he's doing is he's urging on his readers. He's urging them on to finish well, right? So it's his last words he say, says to them, and essentially he's saying, hey, keep running the race. We see these words all throughout the New Testament, to endure to the end, to finish well, to 
to all that you are beginning in your Christian life now, keep doing until either Jesus returns or until he calls you home, right? And that is the constant urging of the New Testament. We see it here too. And on the other hand, and closely attached, is assurance, right? He wants, to, he wants his readers to be assured of their faith and their relationship with God. And those things often work very closely together. Uh, and, and, and the reason they work so closely together is they really are two sides of the same coin. We see Jesus in his parables mention this parable about seeds. And one of the seeds, they get scattered on rocky ground, and they grow up quickly, and they show signs of life. But as soon as any sort of sun comes up, they quickly shrivel up and die. And so we're left with the impressions that there will be many who look like they receive the word of God. They seem like they've received the gospel. They seem like they have become Christians, and yet they don't finish. They quit the faith. They give up on the race. And if that is true, if there are some who appear to have the Holy Spirit but don't, how can you be sure that you, in fact, have the Holy Spirit? That's the logical question, right? And so the New Testament cares a lot about what we would call assurance of salvation. And the reason why is because if we are assured of our salvation and our relationship with God, then we have freedom. We can live freely, trusting that God, who has began this good work in us, will complete it. And that no matter what life events come in our way, we know that God is with us and we can have hope for what is accomplishing in us. But to have that freedom and that confidence, we need assurance. So the Bible spends a lot of ink telling you, this is how you know you are a genuine Christian are not. In fact, the whole book of First John, another book that I encourage you to read. In fact, all of all of them I encourage you to read at some point. That would be good. Um, it's about assurance, right? And so we look at the beginning of this first chapter in Second Peter, and it's the same thing. So I want to pick up reading starting in verse five. So follow along with me. Uh, so Second Peter chapter one verse five. For this very reason, now I'm going to stop right at the beginning. For this very reason needs explanation, right? And essentially a summary of the very reason is that uh, Peter just kind of explained the gospel. That because of Jesus, we can now have uh, the divine, we can become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, Jesus took our unrighteousness and in place gave us his righteousness. He took death in our place and therefore gave us life. And because we have the, become partakers of this divine nature, for this very reason, starting up again, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a lot there that I'm going to come back to in a second, but I want to ask the question, 
What does that even mean to be fruitful in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? What does that even mean? Well, it is answered if we keep reading. So it says here in verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be fruitful in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? It means salvation, right? In other words, if we have received the truth of the gospel, we have repented of our sins, put our faith in Jesus, we have received salvation from our sins, right? But why does Peter spend so much time talking about character virtues? It seems at first glance it could be almost a works thing. Like if you do this, and if you do this, and if you do this, then you can be saved. But That's not, in fact, what Peter is saying. What he is saying is that if you have been saved, then you will be this type of person. It means you do have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not ineffective in your life. In other words, how do you have assurance that you are saved? How do you have assurance that you have the Holy Spirit? You look at your life and you see these characteristics. And what's interesting, as we look at the wording of it, on one hand, it's sort of progressive. You add on to faith, knowledge. And you add on to knowledge, self-control, and that steadfastness. And so there's this progressive maturing, which we see in our own lives, in our own Christian lives. We grow and we mature and we add on these virtues as we go. We don't, for the most part, unless God performs an amazing miracle, we don't receive these all at once. We advance, we mature over time as the Holy Spirit is working. But there's something else there as well. You see, it's not that we develop faith and then we do nothing with it after we then add on knowledge. No, if we look, it says, if you possess these qualities and they are increasing. So what does that mean? That means if you are a Christian, you never graduate from sanctification. God is always working in your life. I don't care if you are a new Christian at 12 years of age or if you've been a Christian for decades and decades at 98 years old. You are always being sanctified. You are always growing. And that is the evidence of the Spirit's work in you. In other words, if you look at your life and you say, am I more faithful? Am I more self-control? Am I more loving than I was last year? And if you can answer yes to that, we know you can't do that on your own. The only way you are is because the Holy Spirit working in you. And so the Bible holds up these characteristics and these virtues as one, as assurance. Because one of the most reassuring things, if you are struggling with this idea, am I truly elect? Am I truly been called? Am I truly saved? Is if looking back at your life, the Holy Spirit shows you all that he's changed in you. Yes, you may have a long, long way to go. Um, I assume, right? It's not just me. You guys have a long, long way to go. 
But if he has worked in you, you can be confident that one day he will complete that work. On the other hand, and this is the tension I often have, sometimes we want to jump in. So we see someone struggling, am I truly saved? And we want them to have confidence and freedom that comes with assurance of salvation. But don't jump in quickly, because if they are wrestling with this question, yes, they may find assurance, they may find that assurance, and it is a good thing, but they may also find that they never actually truly believe. And so what they're wrestling with is not so much assurance, what they're wrestling with is conviction. And we need to let the gospel work do its work in them, right? And so that's what Second Peter, he's writing to these people and he's saying, listen, be assured of your faith and this is how. Look at your life. But then he goes on. He doesn't just want them to be assured of their salvation. That's an important thing. Gives us freedom and confidence in our walk with God. But he also wants them to be confident in their faith. If you turn with me, still in chapter 1, but this time turning to verse 16, it says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, what Peter is saying is that I'm not giving you a myth. I'm not giving you some clever philosophy and self-help tips. I am giving you the truth of the majesty of God, of which I am an eyewitness to. One of the things that I don't think for us makes the same impact that it did in the first century is that this New Testament are eyewitnessed testimonies about the power and majesty of the Son of God. And in fact, if we read here too, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What is that talking about? Uh, This I actually had to be corrected on. I was mistaken earlier. But what is it talking about? When did God the Father say to Jesus, this is my beloved son? Well, two instances. First one that came to mind for me was baptism. But notice, on the holy mountain. This is the transfiguration. What Peter is saying is that I saw Jesus in his divine glory. This is not just a man. This is God himself become a human being to dwell among us. And so when we put our faith in God of the scriptures, we put our faith in not a man who's just given us good advice. We put our faith in God who knows all truth and who works all things for the good of those who love him. We put it on a sure and firm foundation. And not just the New Testament. If we jump down to verse 19, it says, and so if you, if you include this eyewitness testimony in our day, what we could say is the, the New Testament, right? We can be sure of the New Testament. And in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark places until the dawn and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What are what is this prophetic word more fully confirmed? It is the Old Testament. And now that we have Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament, is the prophetic word more fully confirmed? In other words, New and Old Testament, what we have are not men's words. We have God's very words that the Holy Spirit gave to men to write now. The foundation for our faith, how we know God, how we know Jesus, is based on the very word of God. And you can have faith. You can be sure of your faith by grounding yourself in the very words of God. And that's why if you look from the very beginning of Christianity to now, there have been many attacks on Christianity by skeptics and those who are opposed to Christianity. But almost, but a majority of those have always come back to the Scripture. Because Christian skeptics have always recognized one thing, they, that Christianity rises or falls, so to speak, on the Scripture. Right? If you can somehow show that what you have is not accurate or is not actually what they think it is, not the Word of God, then whole of Christianity crumbles. And in a way, they're right. Our whole of our faith is based on the Scripture. But what happens is over time, over so many objections, again and again and again, the Word of God has been proven true. And so on the one hand, on the outside looking in, you might say, oh, that's Christianity's greatest vulnerability. But what you actually see is an enormous amount of evidence that what this is is not just a normal book, not just a normal ancient manuscript, but the very fact that we have so much evidence for what it is is mind-boggling, and it shows to be miraculous. Now, I could talk about this all day. You can ask the high schoolers. We've done a whole series on why we can trust the reliability of Scripture, and it took over a month, and we barely scratched the surface, right? I don't have time for that. If you want more resources, uh, you can ask me, and I, I would also point you to a guy by the name of Michael Kruger. He has a website called Canon Fodder you can go to. But I will just give one example of what often happens when skeptics attack the scripture. Uh, and the, what usually happens often is they try to attack one of the gospels uh, because the gospel tells us very clearly who Jesus is, right? And so every couple of years, you'll hear about this new amazing discovery about this new gospel that revolutionizes the way we see Jesus. Oh, if only the ancients had it, they would have surely known, right? Uh, or if only we had kept this evidence, we would have known that the early church didn't view Jesus like we do now, right? All these amazing claims. For instance, just a couple years ago, and looked us up too, it's fascinating. If you like detective stories, this is a real-life investigative journal list story, and it's really fun. It's called The Gospel of Jesus White. Uh, very interesting story. A couple years ago, they found this new novel discovery about this gospel that was written by someone claiming to be Jesus White revolutionized the way we see Jesus, right? And, that's, and the experts of the field were, were confident that this was absolutely written in the first century, and we could be sure and confident in it, that it transformed the way they view Jesus, they said. However, when a non-academic who, who didn't have stakes in writing new books every couple of months about who Jesus is and isn't, 
started to do research, what they quickly found was that this so-called ancient manuscript, ancient gospel, was actually written by someone very much still alive who was a known con artist who was making some nice coin on the side, right? It was very easily proven. And so what happened in the news, you hear this big rush of news when it comes out, and then all of a sudden it's quiet. You're like, I wonder whatever happened. Well, what happens is with every new discovery of this gospel is they find out, oh, it's not actually an ancient manuscript. Oh, it's not actually dated around the time of Jesus. Oh, it's not actually reliable again and again. And in fact, if you read the evidence of the early manuscripts, you would know that because the earliest Christians from the first and second centuries knew not only that there were four gospels, but that there were only four gospels. So much so that they usually referred to them as the fourfold gospel. And so much so, they, they're like, oh, this, this number four to reveal us who Jesus is, four must be an important number. And so over time, four actually kind of became a, a superstitious number, right? And while we don't hold to the superstitions, we do know that we can be sure that what we have in the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life are the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life and the only four, right, that the, the church believed in. And so evidence after evidence after evidence, what I want you to hear is that we have a firm foundation for our faith. And it is in the scripture, as Peter is telling his audience, that what he has given them is not myth, but is a firm foundation that he himself has seen with his own eyes. In the Old Testament as well, the prophetic word fully confirmed. So be assured of your salvation by growing in your holiness. Be assured of your faith by grounding yourself in Scripture. But as you do that, you see another attack on the Scripture. It's not just its reliability or what it is, but another attack on Scripture comes a different way. And that is from false teachers. So much of New Testament ink is spilled on false teachers. And what you see is that the whole of chapter 2, Peter is warning his people, be wary. Be wary of those who claim to be Christians, who claim to be teaching you God's word, but in fact are twisting it and corrupting it for their own yay. That is true in Peter's day. That is true in today, that the other attack on Scripture is from those who are false friends, those who claim to be Christians, those who claim to be teaching you the truth of God, but in fact are lying for their own gain. Let me read to you starting uh, in chapter 2, um, these first few verses. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And so from these verses, what we see Peter calling warning to is those who would use the scripture and twist it in such a way that it would support them in their own greed and their own lust and their own desire for evil and sinfulness. You hear that today a lot, who take the message of the gospel and they pervert it to say things like, oh, 
Jesus came to bring you freedom, which means you shouldn't be borne down with the guilt of old sexual prejudices. You can do whatever you want because you're free in Jesus, right? And because human beings are fallen and our intellect has fallen, what we do is we use our intellect in a sinful way to confirm our own biases. We say, that must be true because I really want it to be true. And then you'll get false teachers who, who, who support you in that belief. I really want this to be true. And look, this guy knows what he's talking about. and He's saying I'm right. Guess what? Even today, you still have these teachers. Or maybe it's not on sin. Maybe it's just on wealth. If you just follow Jesus, you'll be wealthy and healthy and prosperous. Jesus doesn't want you to sacrifice or suffer at all. He doesn't want you to give up money for, for anything, but to hold it for yourself to live a better life. Do any of these sound familiar? The thing is, none of these tactics are new. They're there from the beginning. And what these false teachers are doing, if we continue and we, we jump down to verse 17, is this. These are waterless springs and mist driven by the storm. Take that image in your head for a second. What he's saying is that they're substanceless. There's nothing to what they're teaching. They sound, they look really cool. They sound really good. But when you actually examine it, there's nothing there. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So when you are graduating, when you are moving on, when you are finding your own church, or even those of you who are here, when you are listening to these teachers on YouTube or elsewhere, and they are promising you this freedom, you need to ask yourself if it's truly free or if it's just slavery. See, the freedom in the gospel is freedom from sin. When we fell, what the scripture says is that we began to actually desire what is destructive for us. The example I always give is, is with eating. Like, How many of us on Thanksgiving or whatever have eaten to the point where it's actually not fun to eat. It's actually painful, right? We don't do that. On the one hand, that's funny. On the other hand, like, think about think how dark that is. You're not, you think you're eating for your own pleasure, but it's actually just kind of making you miserable. That's the same in all of our sins. We think that this gives us freedom and joy, but in reality, it's making us miserable and enslaved and dead. And that's the sad nature of fallen human beings. And, and you have teachers who come along and they say, you're free, you're free, enjoy all of it. And really what they're doing is they're chaining you down with themselves. The only freedom comes in the gospel, freedom from sin, to live fully as the human being you were created to be. And so Peter, once again, as we go through, he wants to give his people an assurance of their salvation so they have confidence and freedom. He wants them to be assured of their faith that is grounded in Scripture. And he wants them to be wary of false teacher who will lead them into slavery and destruction, not only themselves, but all who listen 
to their false teaching. And finally, Peter ends this letter by making sure his readers are assured of God's faithfulness. If you look at chapter 3, what Peter does is he transitions from live a holy life, be grounded in the scripture, avoid false teachers, to talking about the end times. And to many of us today, maybe not all of you, but to many of us today, sometimes we view like all these end times talks as incredibly unpractical and unhelpful. What good can it do now? Like, yeah, it's in the Bible, it's important, but like what practical reality does it give us, right? Well, Peter seems to think it's incredibly important. He, he spends a whole chapter in this final letter saying, hey, by the way, God is coming. God will fulfill his promises. But why? Well, let's look. In verse 8, it says this. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What is he saying? He's saying that a lot of you are worrying that God is not, has forgotten, that he's not going to fulfill his promise. His waiting has led you to think that he's never going to do what he said in the first place. But Peter, reassuring his listeners that they can trust God, they can trust his character, he will fulfill his promises. The reason he is waiting is out of kindness so that, that all who would repent would repent. And so his waiting and his patience is not because he is slow to fulfill his promises. It is out of kindness for us. And so in talking about these end times, Peter reassures his listeners that they can trust God. They can trust God's plan. They can trust God's faithfulness. And they can trust God's heart for them. Then going on, reading verse 11, it continues and it says this, since all things are thus to be dissolved, in other words, it's saying all of these imperishable things that you have right now, they will be dissolved and what will be left is only the eternal that God brings. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, what does it matter? What does the end times matter for the Christian? It matters this. Everything you see right now that is impermanent, we should treat as if it were impermanent. It is good, and it is all the good things that are now, we should treat as gifts from God that are good in the moment. But we should not stake our lives on things that are temporary and time-bound. We should stake our lives only on what is eternal. And that's how we should build up our lives. So in summary, what is Peter saying? And therefore, what am I saying? I hope you guys hear. It's this. I want you to be assured of your salvation. And you can do that by growing in holiness. I want you to be assured of your faith. And you can do that by grounding yourself in Scripture. I want you to avoid false teachers who promise freedom, but really just give you slavery and death. And I want you to be assured of God's character because he will complete what he has promised. And if you do that, we see in chapter 1 that you will not be unfruitful in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. That you will be a Christian who runs to the end of the race. That God will complete the work 
that he has begun in you from the beginning. So with that, what I want to do is close out our time. And then since this is graduation Sunday, I want to bring up a couple of our graduates and celebrate and honor them and pray over uh, um, them as they move into this next season of life. Father, thank you so much for your word and your assurance that you've given us. I pray that um, you would use your word and that you would um, just so sink it into our hearts and our minds as a people, that we would be obedient to you and transformed to be more like your son. Amen. All right. So we come to this time where we celebrate those moving into a new season. And the first thing I would actually like to do is celebrate our upcoming high school.